very pleased to chat some tennis, though. And man who's in the studio, I mentioned it off the top. He's got a growing list of accolades. It's not just tennis writer anymore. He's not just a podcaster or a broadcaster. He's also a published author. He's the author of the book, Nomi Osaka, Her Journey to Finding Her Power and Her Voice. His name is Ben Rothenberg, and he's in the studio with me. Hello, Ben. Nice to be here. Uh, back in Australia, are you, are you someone who counts how many trips? How, what number is this for you? 11. It's 11 trips 11. here. First one was in 2012, and so I missed the 2021 one, which was a hard quarantine year. I didn't make the trip at that time, and then I didn't come last year because I was working on the book. So I didn't yes. travel the tour pretty much at all, except for a couple tournaments that were within driving distance of my home in Washington, D.C. I've got a million questions to ask about the book, and what an amazing subject, by the way, to, to write about Naomi Osaka. But um, the, the timing of it, so the fact that you're in Australia and the book's released here, I can't imagine that's by coincidence right on the eve of the Australian Open and one in which Naomi's obviously performed so well at. Yeah, no, actually, honestly, the original published date for the book in the U.S. at least was going to be August 2023 before the U.S. Open oh, last wow. year. Yep. And then Naomi announced that she was missing the entire season and she was pregnant and, and planning to come back in Australia 2024. So we pushed it back by four or five months. It was a huge blessing, honestly, obviously for her having a baby, but for me as well, getting an extra <laughs> four to five months working on the book. I was also grateful for that uh, shower of gifts she gave me there. So, yeah, uh, it was uh, a pretty easy decision to to push it back then and we didn't know that she would stick to her plan a timeline because you know she said that pretty early in her pregnancy and you never know what kind of complications are going to be fitness struggles getting that back but she has stayed remarkably on track and looks really sharp through just one tournament so far in brisbane but all systems go and her team's feeling very good about her her tennis right now uh, my friend and broadcast colleague ben cameron i mentioned to you yesterday he's already picked it up he's a big uh, reader of sports books and scrolling down the street in south yarra now all of a sudden is uh is quite a few pages deep into the book but uh, and I was lucky enough to get a copy from you yesterday and have, have started the, the first few chapters. Um, I imagine it would be a big buzz to be able to see your book out and about just strolling through the streets of Melbourne in, in all bookstores. Yeah, definitely. It's very cool. I went to a couple of designs some books already and seeing it in person. It's my first book of any, any sort of scale that's sold in bookstores so I really and enjoying that part of the ride. And yeah, it's also just great because it's a very solitary process a lot of times compared to the instant gratification a bit of newspaper writing where you get to put something out there and yeah. people share it and retweet it, comment, tell you about it, whatever. And this was much more talking into a void for a while until finally it's out in the world. So I'm just very excited that people are reading it and always curious to hear people's thoughts and questions and reactions to it. So why Naomi Osaka? You know, Naomi, I think is, first of all, one of the players who I really felt like I saw from the beginning of her career on the Pro Tour compared to a lot of the players, like I said, I first came here in 2012. And so a lot of the players who were still the top players were players who I was watching when I was in high school or college, and, and I'm not that young anymore. I mean, they were players like Federer, Sharapova, Serena, uh, Nadal, Venus, obviously, as well, who were all there. And, and Andy Murray and Djokovic came a little bit later, but still predated me on the tour by a few years. And Naomi was the one who I felt like I really got a front row seat to the very beginning of the ride from. And also, just this book, as you can tell probably from reading the first few chapters, spans a lot just beyond tennis. There's a lot of other things to get into. It's not It, it is a sports book, but it's also, I think, a, mm. a lot of times broader than that in a lot of different directions. And Naomi has this pretty unique position in world culture at the intersection of a lot of different issues and a lot of different crossroads in, in society. So there's a lot of ways to go with it. It's a, it's a thick book, as you, can, as you can see by picking it up, but uh, it could have been a lot longer. There's just yeah. a lot that she, she harps on, which makes it interesting for me as a, as a writer. Uh, Haitian father, Japanese mother, grew up in America. So um, she's, she's an Asian player, wanted to become the first Japanese player to win a major. She mm -hmm. did that. By the age of 23, she'd already been number one in the world, four-time slam champion. Uh, now she's a mother as well. She's also a black athlete and has spoken a lot in the past um, about her blackness and mm -hmm. about um, the, the role that that has played in her life. But incredibly thoughtful and such a transparent athlete. I, I, 
I don't know in your experiences, Ben, you deal with athletes from all different countries all around the world. Have yeah. you ever had a more transparent athlete that you've dealt with? No, she doesn't hide behind cliches, and it's incredible. it made it incredibly easy to write a book that she's an incredibly reliable narrator of herself, is open, really shares things from, from deep within herself that sometimes surprise herself even, the what kind of things she comes up with that she says to reveal about herself, and she kind of learns about herself, sometimes while talking about herself. It's a really fascinating process she has, particularly in interview structure. She's actually not always that open or that, that social in more casual conversations, mm-hmm. which is a the opposite of most athletes, obviously, you've talked to tons, you know, they'll be on the podium and they'll be a bit more, even like what was heard from Alex Dimonar, who was, who was great in your interview, but starts off by saying, I don't feel pressure, sort of some, some, some similar lines that he's used a lot of times in repetitive things. Yeah. Naomi doesn't do that. Naomi doesn't have a sort of script she can ever flip onto, which can make it tough for her at times when she is getting tougher questions and she kind of feels them more viscerally uh, than other athletes might let themselves. Mm. I'll pick that up with you in just a moment. Ben Rothenberg is with me in studio. He's the author of Naomi Osaka her journey to finding her power and her voice, which is uh, a tremendous book, which is uh, out now. So you can get that in all bookstores. Uh, we're just chatting about Nomi Osaka and how transparent she is. And you're, you're right. I mean, you, you speak to these athletes and you feel like everything sort of goes through a computer or they remember sort of the script that they'd been through previously. And I remember back to the episode where, you know, she was clearly struggling with her mental health and she decided she didn't want to do any press anymore. And yeah. she returned to do some press. And it, there was that controversial moment where I know her... Um, her staff basically felt that one of the questions was out of line from a journalist that was given to her. But I don't know about you, but I felt listening to it. It was a question in which Naomi thought a lot about. She considered. She went back and basically thought, no, no, hang on. I'm going to give a thoughtful response to this rather than just yeah. you know, blowing it off completely. That she she wanted to answer the question and actually give it all her attention and all her thought. Yeah, that moment's in the book, obviously. It, it, 2021 Cincinnati tournament, which was her first press conference back after that moment. And it was interesting because the question on paper wasn't that was certainly in keeping with a lot of what had been said about Naomi and the culture and, and, and media in a lot of ways, basically saying it's a bit hypocritical, let's say, to say you don't want to do media, but also profit so much from your image being everywhere and all the sponsors you have. And there's sort of a trade off there. And that mm. was sort of the, the tone of the question. And it's kind of the criti- critics have been saying that about, about her for months. And she was intrigued by the question because I think that probably oftentimes she gets treated with, a, you know, some kid gloves at times by her team and people around her, especially when she's struggling. So this was the first time. And there were a few different things that I think made her react differently to that. First of all, it was not someone she knew who asked the question. It was all on Zoom, too. Okay. And, and, and that was one of the things that I kind of found more clearly while reporting the book is a lot of her struggles during 2021 were actually similar to other things people were having in the pandemic and all sorts of walks of life and all sorts of careers. Having the dehumanized experience of not having in-person press conferences for her, for example, she felt was very dehumanizing. And she mm-hmm. felt uh, other people also she didn't know who could suddenly just port into a, her in front of her face with a click of a mouse who aren't, weren't part of the normal traveling tes- tennis core of reporters. So those were different challenges. And yeah, she she answered the question, then she she started crying. And the question wasn't wasn't hard, wasn't harsh. I mean, her agent had called bullying at the time. And it yeah. wasn't it was it was sort of more I think the thing is also the other parts of that press conference, people have been really walking on eggshells because we knew it was her first time back in months. We knew this was sort of like a fragile situation. So people were the core tennis people, including myself, I was in that press conference as well, were sort of trying to ease her back into it, just to make sure that she could get back in the waters, which had been Mm. And just make a, make the good rest of her career in media, you know, comfortable for her or feel safe for her. And so it was a, a local reporter who wasn't part of that sort of gang of people who who went maybe a little further than she was ready for in that moment. Mm. I, I find her such a fascinating character, as I've touched on already. I mean, she's so socially conscious. She clearly wants to be, more than anything, a force for good in the world. Yeah. So she's 
And tennis players don't live ordinary lives where they travel everywhere all across the globe, and yet they also are very isolated. So you're seeing everything while really seeing nothing at the same yeah. time. They're not going on holidays, for example. Like it's the, their experience of visiting some cities and ports aren't the same way as they would be for ordinary people, for example, to be able to, to go out and, and sample the lifestyle. But you mentioned to me yesterday that she has actually been out and about yeah. in Melbourne more than you would ordinarily expect from a, a top tennis player with, with her profile. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've often said that tennis players, I think I wrote this during the pandemic, actually, the controversy here around the, the hard lockdowns and the players complaining about it. The tennis players are very well-traveled, but not worldly. They really don't have a lot of sense of what's going on in the world. They would not have known what was going on in Melbourne with the lockdowns or any of the sort of backstory of why there was so mm-hmm. much uh, antipathy towards their complaints about having to be in a hotel room for a bit and getting only limited time to play tennis in, in between. Yeah, and, and Naomi here, and this is her first trip in this part of her career. She's traveling with uh, a new person in her entourage who's a videographer named, named Samba, who's a Senegalese-American uh, videographer. who has been doing a lot of cool cool stuff with her. They've been putting on social mm-hmm. media so far. And I think he's, the sense I get is he's sort of leading the path of taking her to a lot of museums and cultural stuff around the CBD. And so she seems to be enjoying that. I don't know how it'll affect her tennis, but it's cool to see her getting out in the world. And Because when you're in tennis, you you know, are all alone just sitting in your hotel room rocking back and forth thinking about your next match, your next opponent. It can be very easy to spiral yeah. in lots of different ways. So having some sort of interest uh, outside of the tournament can be very key, whether, whether that's players, you know, reading or watching Netflix or playing video games, whatever it is, some sort of source of, of de-stressor is, is really key for every player and they have to find their own. And I think also for Naomi, she can potentially find that like other parents on tour have in her new child too going mm. forward. That's something that I think a lot of people find can be very stabilizing and can make uh, your sort of self-spiral, self-centered spiral in a way about just thinking about yourself and your own pressures uh, a bit eased by having this other person uh, to take care of and think about. What kind of access did you get to Naomi while writing the book? So I traveled on tour in 2022 shadowing her uh, and and talked to her a lot at, at tournaments that she was playing. She actually went up playing a much lighter schedule than expected. So that was one of the challenges with the book too. And she wasn't winning very much. So she yeah. was leaving a lot of tournaments. She got she got injured. Um, I've known her for a long time. I think she wanted to stay, keep somewhat arm's length from the book at times. Yep. So I didn't do like long sit down dedicated interviews for the book. But so just, just jump back. You said yeah. you traveled in 2022. So do you yeah. tell her at the start? You say, hey, by the way, I'm going to write this book. Oh, about she knew. Yeah, she yep. knew. Her team knew. Her team was, and her, I would dealt with a lot with her agent, Stuart, yep. uh, as I was coming up with the idea for the book. And he indicated they'd be, you know, wouldn't be hostile to it for sure. Cool. So, so that was good to have. And he, they were always very responsive, any questions I had. And then Naomi at the end, actually, to skip ahead to that, was very personally involved in like, the fact-checking process, which was a huge okay. relief as a, as a journalist yeah. uh, that she went through this whole list of things and said, yep, 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 checked off a lot of things. And a couple of things like clarified, well, this didn't exactly happen that way. It actually was my sister and whatever it was. Like, so that was, that was a big relief as a journalist that she was uh, there. So it's, you know, people talking biographies about authorized or unauthorized. It's kind of not fully in either category. It's, mm. It wasn't like she had control over any part of it or I wrote it all independently and edited independently and she didn't have veto power over any. There's some, a couple parts of it in there. I know she wishes probably weren't in there in terms of certain things that happened in her life. Uh, but overall, I think uh, I think she's happy with it. I've got a couple of key things that I just want to pick out. But I, yeah. I mean, my everyone's got a view of athletes. I mean, basically, my, my view on her is very much that she is so grateful for the position she's in. She's got a Haitian father. She's been to Haiti. She's so aware of the world around her and the things that are going on. And almost like she's not able to feel truly grateful for it she almost feels guilty and this is something that she's worked so hard for a whole life to actually achieve this and to be in this kind of position it's so rare to see an athlete like that do you, do you get that sense from her i don't know about guilty i'm not sure that's the word i would necessarily use but i, I understand i understand why you think that i yeah. i think that she sort of struggles for motivation sometimes at, at, at times too that's one of the big sort of stories in in the book and actually i wrote a, a piece for the saturday paper that's out right now about about sort of the different ways she's found motivation 
in 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 her tennis, and she always has been great at hitting at, at how to hit the tennis ball. But knowing mm. why she's hitting the tennis ball has been a bit more elusive for her, and trying to find purpose. And early on in her life, it was just about beating her sister was her main goal, as a lot of younger siblings I'm sure can relate to. She had a sister who was 18 months older than her, was always better than her, and she lost to every day. And they really had a pretty isolated childhood where they really only practiced with the two of them. And yeah. Naomi said she's probably down like a million to nothing at some point <laughs> in the head to head against her sister Mari, and and trying to beat her actually was a huge motivating factor for her getting better and wanting to improve. And and I think a big part of why she became the player she is that sort of younger sister energy and then later on she wanted to play to get her mom uh to be able to stop working because her mom had been working such long hours while their father was on court in tennis courts all day to try to keep the family at all afloat which was a struggle mm. as the as the tennis careers were not being profitable for many years and yeah and so and so naomi has found that source in those two people and then when she didn't once the mom was comfortable secure financially that's when sort of the mental health issue started for naomi she said that depression when she didn't have that motivation when she didn't know why she was doing this anymore when she couldn't find a purpose in the sport that was a tough time for her and so she's now skipping way ahead to having her 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 daughter mm. She's saying that's now sort of a new sense of purpose. But she's also saying at the same time, I need to learn to play for myself. I need to learn how to just do this for me. That's going to be more sustainable in the future, which I would agree with. Ben Rothenberg, the author of uh, the biography on Naomi Osaka, which is out now. So uh, the first few chapters of the books talk about the episode at Indian Wells. Mm -hmm. And whenever you say Indian Wells, a lot of people immediately think of the Williams sisters. And obviously the episode that happened there in the past. And uh, I mentioned earlier about, you know, Naomi's father being from Haiti. Um, There are very few players of color on the tour. At least they have been historically. Uh, I think when the Williams sisters played each other in the final in 2017, out of the 256 players across both draws, I think there were five players of color. And Mm. to think that two of them played each other in the final is incredible. And that's only seven years ago um, here in Australia. For people that aren't aware of that backstory, can you just shed some light on that and, and what, I guess, you discovered looking back on it as, as someone that obviously would have lived through it at the time? In Indian Wells. Yeah. yeah, I mean, certainly. So Indian Wells 2001, Serena and Venus are scheduled to play each other in the semifinals of that tournament. And uh, they played each other several times before. And this time, shortly before the match, it's announced that Venus is uh, pulling out of the match. And the stadium was like already filling up. It was a night match. It was already mm-hmm. filled up. And, and the crowd was very upset at this. And there were these rumors at this time that their father, Richard, uh, was fixing the results between them and, and arranging who would win. And that had been kind of persistent during their career because their matches were always kind of strange against each other. They were never comfortable playing against each other. All the things I said about how Naomi was motivated to beat her sister, yeah. Serena and Venus kind of repelled that energy. They didn't they – didn't, that wasn't ever what they really motivated them and not that mm. typical sibling rivalry. rivalry way. It was all about Williams versus the world, not Williams versus Williams for them. Mm. And so anyway, so, skip, so back to 2001, Serena gets a walk over into this final. She plays Kim Kleisters, the young Belgian who was pretty unknown at that point, and the crowd is – booing Serena as she comes out on court, booing her father and Venus as they walk into the stadium and ravenously supporting this foreigner from, from Europe, this, this white player in this very, very white crowd in this very conservative resort town in the California desert. And and it's an ugly scene. And, and, and Serena, eventually, after all this booing and the family said they heard racial slurs in the stands and, and things like that, the, Serena doesn't go back to the tournament for 14 years. There's a long boycott. And this is the second biggest tournament in the U.S. And the, behind the U.S. Open. And, and they're the, the best biggest, players. The biggest player in the world. Yeah. yeah. So Serena boycotts. Jeez. Venus also boycotts. Serena made her come back uh, finally tearfully in this sort of moment of reconciliation. And she sort of talked about justice and Nelson Mandela and, and a few different things uh, in, in her comeback. And and Venus came back a year later as well. And so, the yeah, the opening chapter of my book is about two, tw- 2022, Naomi Osaka's playing there, and there's she loses the first game, she's broken, and a woman in the in the crowd shouts out, Naomi, you suck, and and something about it triggers Naomi, and she starts thinking, and sort of she gets so much online abuse all the time, but very, very rarely in tennis you hear, do you get in-person hecklers? And something about it, it's never a science, you know, what sort of 
arrow will pierce your armor on any given day. But something yeah. about that remark just hit a nerve for her, and she and she was losing control in that match. She was crying on court. She was asking the the chair umpire if she could if she could borrow the microphone to make a statement to the crowd, which is not something a tennis player ever does. And and that was pretty perplexing. And she lost the match. And and afterwards, there was a big team meeting in, in Team Osaka to say that she really did need to get some sort of help to get her yeah. her mental mental health better. Because as much as Naomi in the year previous had been this face of mental health in the no, U.S. No. especially and, and the worldwide, I mean, the to- Tokyo Olympics in 2021 were kind of centered around mental health of athletes with Naomi, very much the, the poster uh, girl for that. That she wasn't getting that sort of professional help. She was only doing sort of more casual self-care things and not talking to anybody and not seeing things. So it was actually her sister, Mari, who sort of who was at, at this team meeting. She doesn't usually travel on tour with, with Naomi, but she was near L.A. and in, in Indian Wells when she, she came to this tournament and kind of broke through to her that she needs to get that help. So how she continues with that uh, the rest of her career, uh, we'll see. Uh, but that's certainly, yeah, that was the biggest moment that happened while I was shadowing her in 2022, yeah. this, this sort of flashpoint moment that showed that she was, and it was also huge news is the other thing too, like player upset by Heckler, literally on like news sites around the world was the number two story in the world in that week behind Russia invades Ukraine. Yeah. It was on that scale. Naomi had reached that sort of level of, of media uh, uh, om- omnipresence. So I think the other thing that's fascinating about this is all of this followed the 2020 year, which was an amazing year for Naomi Osaka. Yeah. Um, she wins the U.S. Open in 2020, but she does so um, you know, making a statement the entire time. She wore the face masks with uh, the names of um, a number of African-American people that were you know, uh, killed by uh, basically the police force. And, Largely, yeah. Yeah, throughout um, yeah, issues that had, had happened with um, with authority figures in the United States. So she was front and center with that. She had Kobe Bryant sitting sitting in her box on mm-hmm. occasions. Clearly, they were close. Kobe obviously died at the beginning of, uh, of, of 2020, so she had that grief to deal with. She flew to Minnesota to be part of the George George Floyd protests. Yeah. I mean, what, like to see an athlete like that and make such a move and be able to fly into the middle of a city that was you know, uh, clearly broken at that particular stage yeah. and um, ha- had all sorts of things going on at that particular stage, that all of this is the backdrop for an athlete that we're still talking about what is in their early 20s, still trying to work out what's important to them and yeah. uh, and trying to make it all work. That summer actually was when I had the idea to write the book, unsurprisingly, mm-hmm. and, and sort of the, the subtitle of it, Finding Her Voice, very much was something that happened in 2020. She made this concerted declaration actually on social media, on Twitter, saying, I'm done being shy. Like I feel like being shy has cost me a lot of opportunities in life, and I resolved to not be shy. And it was a, it was a struggle within her. It wasn't easy, it was, but it was a very conscious resolution that she made during the pandemic, the same way a lot of people tried to do new things with all this sudden mm. free time they had to reinvent themselves or find new hobbies, whatever it may be, profound or, or not otherwise. And, and Naomi, yes, had this moment where she flew to Minnesota, and then she went to New York, and she was in the, the Cincinnati tournament, which was being held in New York that year as part of the bubble. They just held both tournaments in, in New York in the same sort of COVID-safe bubble, which did work pretty well in the end, actually, with no fans. It was the first sort of big tennis tournament with no mm. fans as an experiment. And, and yeah, Naomi, at, midway through the tournament, she was into the semifinals of Cincinnati, and there was another uh, shooting of a, of a black man in Wisconsin named Jacob Blake. And the NBA team first from Wisconsin, the Milwaukee Bucks, led uh, said they weren't going to go on court and play their match in the NBA bubble, which is in Florida. And then sort of dominoes fell in the NBA and WNBA. A bunch of uh, stoppages happened in those leagues. And Naomi said, I'm not going to play in tennis. And there have been no no history of any kind of any sort of disruption like that in in tennis to, for someone to make that sort of mid-tournament protest like that about a non-tennis issue it was was very revolutionary. And it, eventually the tournament bowed to her will. They eventually said, we're going to stop too. Like they didn't want to have just Naomi 
sitting alone and being out and determined going on that they thought that would be out of step with what the the moment was in the United States. And so they stopped and Naomi got sole credit or blame for that actually. It was not a popular decision among a lot of her European peers who were in that tournament. Players like Novak Djokovic, Victoria Azarenka, who were the other two sort of major champions in that draw, both went and complained to tournament administrators in, in New York saying you wouldn't stop if something happened in Serbia or Belarus for their home countries respectively. So why is this thing in America disrupting our tournament and our Grand Slam preparation? They just didn't understand it on a basic level. And so Naomi did that. And that was actually the day that the play was stopped. It was the day I actually first had the idea to do the book and sort of started thinking mm-hmm. about it and contacting a few people. Because I, I was just so struck by this really, really shy person who I'd first met when she was 18 years old here in, in Melbourne, Raleigh Verena in the Player Lounge, uh, who was saying that she was too afraid uh, to make eye contact with Serena Williams because she loved her too much and it would just be too too overwhelming if she ever had that happen. For her to then, only a few years later, be the person, you know, really putting a, a stop to the entire sport, this huge yeah. machinery, men's and women's tennis, uh, was, was really remarkable. Well, actually, I wasn't working on the tournament in 2021, the Australian Open here. I actually bought a ticket uh, mm. earlier to go to the final. And one of the main reasons for that was I thought it was going to be the Serena Williams story. Mm. And in the end, you end up being there for Naomi Osaka and uh, Brady. And, Brady. Uh, and in the end, it was the story was Naomi Osaka. I think, gee, this player is the, the best player on planet Earth right now. I think she'd won four flam- yeah. slams in quick succession um, and was clearly at the, the top of her game at that particular stage. Just to pick up on what you were just saying, uh, that instance aside, is she a popular player in the locker room i think so, i thought so i was while i was traveling on tour with this very single focus or largely single focus of working in this book i talked to a lot of other players about naomi mm. and they largely would just say that they didn't know her very well they actually were not super insightful about her compared to what you would think for someone who's had such an outsized presence but naomi has put us a lot of barriers around herself she says that she wears her, her big headphones her big beats headphones over her ears as a real visual cue of like don't talk to me like I she usually has music on but not always and and she just wants it as a sort of first layer of defense from awkward social interactions yeah. and so a lot of the players they were positive about her but generally vague and say I wish I knew her better she seems nice we like her but we don't really know her she wasn't sort of and she also doesn't play doubles which is she doesn't sort of mix in ways that require she also doesn't practice much with other players that's something she changed actually here at this tournament this mm. this week she practiced with Anshabur yesterday and with Amanda Nisimova earlier this week, which is very rare for her actually to hit with other players. Usually she likes to keep to herself as much as possible, uh, but she's branching out a bit at this stage. We'll see how, how that goes. And she also actually said in Brisbane, uh, she offered this on her own. She said, I'm not wearing my headphones around. I'm seeing how that goes. So mm. she's very conscious of, of the wall she puts up. I was interested listening to her yesterday, and, and you got to remember a lot of the time you know, we're covering footy and cricket, and the, the bits that we see of tennis are often you know, little snippets that come on news bulletins, for example, that might be 12 seconds of a press conference that goes for 20 minutes. But I, I was lucky enough to sit in on her entire press yesterday. I spoke to her for a couple of minutes, which I'll, I'll play a little later. Um, I, I felt like she had, I don't know if this is maybe my own bias, but I felt like she was more confident in herself or certainly was very confident in the way she spoke. We didn't hear her um and ah a lot. Have you noticed that change in her? And obviously she's a mum now is the, the major yeah. um, thing that's happened in her life since we, we last saw her on tour. I think she's just confident. And I think a lot of it does actually tend to do with her within that setting of a tournament. It tends to do with her tennis form. And I think she feels really good about how she played in Brisbane and the fitness she's in. And that match she put in the second round of Brisbane against Carolina Pliskova was really, really high quality. Naomi lost the match, but I think the stats, which might have been generous, but the stats had her at 40 winners and only 12 unforced errors. Yeah. It was an absurdly clean, powerful performance. Both of them, big servers, playing really, really well. And Naomi just wasn't as clutch in some of the big moments. She only went two for 12 on break points, and that's just sort of lack of match play. But she feels really good. She actually tweeted after the match, not going to lie, that was fun uh, after, after a loss, which after how hard she'd taken so many losses in her career was a really big sign of growth. So, yeah, we, we hope and, and we think that things might be more more stable and have a bit more ballast to her life now, that she has this child, that she has more maturity, that she's 
finally something, and she did say something finally clicked for her during this year off, where it hadn't in previous other sporadic absences she'd had from the sport. Maybe not something that made the book. Maybe it, it does make the book. But what's something that you learnt about Naomi Osaka where you thought, damn, I didn't think I was going to discover that in what, the, it, while I was doing this process? One of the very early things I learned, actually, which is not like the most consequential thing, is that she was an actress as a kid. She was a child actress. You might have gotten through yeah, that yeah, chapter yeah. early on. It's one of the very early chapters. Her father made these independent movies, and that was one of the first things I found. I was sort of doing my Google like super deep dive on him was his, his film credits and I didn't know and then finding the finding the uh, a Haitian website that still sold the DVD yes. of this movie was a big it was a big coup so I got them to ship the DVD to me and watch the DVD <laughs> of, of Selfish Love directed by uh, Leonard Maxime Francois who's Naomi's father starring Naomi Osaka and Mario Osaka and it's 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 wild to see this kid in there but the movie's also very grim that's the thing too that's about it no it, it's not like a fun home movie it's like Rough. a movie about like about abuse and sort of like self-destructive behavior by this father and his oh, life's wow. sort of spiraling out of control and I can give spoilers I don't think I was going to watch yeah, this yeah. movie but it like ends with him in a wheelchair and the family walking along and it's a whole it's a dark movie mm. and so that sort of mix of, of seeing this young Naomi on screen and also this sort of this strange atmosphere going around that was one of the most like incongruous things but I felt like I had to put it in the book because yeah. like, leaving it out felt bizarre and, and not worth what my triumph of finding this DVD oh, I must admit when I read that part the only thing I th- could think of was the image of you getting that from the post office, picking it up, <laughs> putting the DVD in, sitting down with a notepad and writing a few notes on this home movie that had happened exactly. from, from 20 exactly. years ago or whatever it may have been. Um, ben Rothenberg with me, who's the author of uh, the Naomi Osaka biography, which is out now, uh, Her Journey to Finding Her Power and Her Voice. Tremendous book. Thanks heaps for uh, for coming in, Ben. Before you go, I do have these set of questions which I'm asking all of our tennis guests today. All right. We haven't had much chance to do a huge deep dive on the Australian Open ahead because we've been talking about um, Naomi Osaka and what a fascinating topic it is. But... But I've got these seven questions, okay. given your nationality. First one, who will be the highest ranked United States player at the end of the year? Men or women? Yeah. Either? Yep. All right. Uh, give us one of each if you want. Yeah, okay. I would say, I mean, it's between, for the women, I think it's between golf and Pagula, although Kennan is actually rising pretty fast. And, and if she rediscovers some form here, she could be in the mix. But I would say Pagula. I think that, Ooh. I think that, she, I mean, she's in the top five. She didn't have a best start to the year. But I just think she's so solid. I think she's such an underrated player. I think she'll be in the top five somewhere. And and golf, I don't know if if golf will hover just above that. It's going to be very close between the two of them. They're very neck and neck in the rankings at all times. So not much between them. But I would just say a coin flip to Pagula. For the men, I actually was having this conversation with somebody recently. I think one of the more popular picks for this is Sebastian Corda, actually, who I think people have been waiting for to have this breakthrough full season of being healthy. And they think if everyone's at their best, he's maybe the most ready to be the best. I think he's only number four or five on the American ladder now. He just made the semis of Adelaide this week and made a quarterfinal here last year and then got hurt and missed a long stretch of time. But if the stars align and he can get there, uh, I think he can end Taylor Fritz's surprisingly long yeah. reign at that top spot. It feels like we hear a lot about Fritz and Tiafo and Paul and Shelton on the yeah. rise and yet look out for uh, for quarter. It's a strong top five in America yeah. then. Uh, Australian Open, boring one. Who wins, men's and women's? The boring one is Djokovic. I yep. think it, it, there are, you know, I could say something spicy just to mix it up, but it's, it's not smart to bet against Djokovic at this tournament. I've been here 12 times. I think, I don't know how many of those he's won. I should count, but probably at least nine. And and he is, uh, yeah, just such a force here and really is, is so remarkable here. And, and he's still the guy to beat, even turning 37 this year. Uh, he, he's not slowing down. It doesn't feel like the men's game has moved on because he's still the top the same way he was in 2011. It's still the same sort of generation because of Novak holding down. And, and it's amazing there's no one else in the top 10 who's older than 28. I think the next oldest is Medvedev, or 27 he might even be still. I mean, there's this huge gap. It's Djokovic and then this whole other generation that, mm. that he's, he's keeping the lid on that. And then for the women, she's a tough draw, but I think the best player in women's tennis right now is Iga Svantec. I, she got a tough draw. She plays Kennan, who I just mentioned, 2020 champ here in the first round, and they could play Kerber or Daniel Collins in the second round. So t- three, there's three 
Australian Open former finalist in that section and the number one. And Shantek's not a former finalist, but she is number one, and she finished the year really strong. I think she is the one player in this women's generation right now, not counting Naomi because Naomi hasn't been around lately, but who I think would have been a great player in any generation. I think overall, people say it's the strongest generation. We're not sure, but Shantek is the one who clearly could hack it against anyone anytime in terms of the all-time grades, I think. I've got about 60 seconds before the news. I've got four right. things to get through. Real quick. First major title in 2024 in the ATP and the WTA Tours. Can you see a first-time champion on either side? Yeah, Sinner, for yep. sure. I think Sinner's going to win a Grand Slam at some point this year. I feel pretty good about that. Women, I'll say no. No? I don't see, I don't see a first-timer on the women's side. And who will end the calendar year as the world number one in both tours? I think Djokovic. I think Djokovic is still a movable object when he shows up and plays things, and he'll finally get a, a, a pandemic restriction-free season this year for the first time, which he hasn't had in a long time. It'll be him and then Shiontek. Yep, there you go. Dominant player. She's won, what, three of the last seven slams or something like that, or four of the last seven? She's won four overall, yeah. It's amazing, the uh, the form that she's in. And yet, it feels like the conversation in the mainstream is, oh, when are we going to have a new star in women's tennis? And yet, she's been starring for uh, for a period of time. Absolutely. Uh, ben, thanks heaps for coming in. Congratulations on the book. It's, a, you, it's a great read so far. And I'll get through that before the uh, before the tournament's out, I'm sure. If you hope. Congratulations if you do. <laughs> Thank you, Gorman, for having me. Ben Rothenberg, always uh, love having his insights with me in studio.